Good morning, y'all. Today, um, I got a really interesting guest that I get to talk to. Um, he is a veteran in, I believe, the Air Force, but once uh, we start chatting, I'm going to confirm that. Um, he is a, or was, I believe, a medic, and he does. Um, he is a liver and kidney surgeon, so he does liver and kidney transplants. And, uh, yeah, so I'm excited to hear about the science of it. And so please welcome Greg Abrahamian. So first of all, well, I already did the intro, but thank you for your service. Oh, you're welcome. Uh, yeah, that was correct in the Air Force. But, so you're saying she's a film major and she, that she created that for a project? She, she created that, um, little film while she was still in high school. Oh, okay. Yeah, it was through her high school, um, She's not technically a film major now. She's at UTSA, and she's supposed to transfer to the film school in UT this fall. Uh-huh. Um, but now she's questioning if she's going to do that or go to A&M through this film marketing thing. So it, She wants to make movies? She, We're talking about her daughter, by the way. Yeah. Or his she, daughter. She, she did, and uh, all that may be in flux now. Mm. You know, she's experiencing college and discovering other things so I'm not sure what she plans on doing but she's that artsy fartsy paints and uh-huh. where'd that come from you no not at all not from me that's your, all her. your wife no I don't think so mm. I think I'm not sure where that came from it's interesting how um, in kids a lot of times you have one kid who's like way more artistic you have one kid who's more more athletic you have mm-hmm. Because, like, my brother is way more artistic than I am. Yeah. Well, she's the artistic one. The younger one, the 14-year-old's the college-bound gymnast. Mm. Yeah. So uh, they're at the gym right now. Uh Although the older one, I told you, she's got her horse, you know, stone throws away from here, um, was a competitive horse jumper and just stopped competing this last year. She still rides, but she doesn't do show jumping anymore she just she just trains so and she she competed uh-huh did she ever make some money no not not always oh, okay. in the amateur ranks not in the not a professional you can't make much money or any money in the amateur uh, field. what does that consist of running uh, a course and jumping uh-huh. with your horse that they have a pre-described you know pre-set up course and it's basically lack of a better term you ride balls out and yeah. get through the courses did you ever ride horses you Back in California, uh-huh. I had a aunt and uncle up in Marin County who owned a gigantic horse farm. And uh, every most of my younger years growing up uh, spent summers there, so I'd ride there, but I was not a good rider. I mean, <laughs> I'm there. So we were talking about initially, I had no idea that you were from California. Yeah, born so and raised. Born and raised in Fresno. Fresno, Central Valley. Huh, Northern California. Oh no, Fresno is, is like smack dab in the center of farm country. That's near um, Yosemite. Uh, we could get to Yosemite in about forty-five minutes, or about an hour, and get to Sequoia and Kings Canyon in about forty-five minutes. Yeah, I love that area. Yeah. Sequoia's gorgeous. Love camping over there. Yeah. So, would you? Uh, when did you move from? Right after you said you joined, right? Well, yeah. So I moved to Texas. I moved to San Antonio. Um, Right after undergrad, I probably would have been 22 years old, 21, 22. It took me five years to get through college. Um, 
and moved to San Antonio for medical school and basically and then never been lived back in California since then oh never been back yeah and I'm 55 now so So, so I'm curious I know like uh, Mr. Strothers from California as well were you like a beach kid mountain kid what were you desert Um, me and my friends kind of tried it all Um, again skateboarders uh, we had surfboards. I, I would have never pegged you as yeah. like somebody who skates. And like, the board's in the back of the car. We'll go just, do you know, the <laughs> only trick I know how to do is double kick flip. No, I was not a street <laughs> skater. I was okay. a half pipe bowl skater. Oh. Swimming pools. So not a street skater. So I can't really do the tricks. Uh-huh. Um, but we surfed. I had, I actually even brought, had brought my surfboard to Texas when, when we moved. Um, and then, you know, the mountains were right there, so. Snowboard? Or no, never snowboard. Neither. That, that was always eventually a plan. Mm-hmm. And it wasn't, I wasn't a skier either, but, you know, eventually it was a plan to snowboard, but by then already got out of California. Ah, gotcha. You like, do you ever go back? Not to live. Oh, to visit. I'm supposed to be back there next month. Yeah. I'm the only one outside of California. Okay, all your family. All there. family, extended family, everyone's still More back abouts. in California. Uh, my immediate family's uh, in Fresno, but most of the extended families, Southern California, and on my dad's side, a few still left in Northern California. Where in Southern California? Uh, all over, either in Montebello, Glendale, the Valley. So LA area? All in the LA area. Okay. Yeah. Because all my family is in Southern California as well. Yeah. And, and again, I also grew up in southern you know spent yeah. most of my summers between northern california southern california uh-huh so uh, you have a an idea of how i grew up uh-huh or as far as always something to do always adventures to go on yeah but just slowly and slowly just getting california busier. boys yep getting busier and busier where are your parents from from california as well no 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 that that's a whole another story my dad uh, i'm first generation um, okay. american same here. Um, my dad was born in Kharkov, Ukraine, um, and during World War II, family, his family migrated um, with the retreating German army um, into eventually, you know, here or there, but eventually into a DP camp, um, displaced persons camp in Germany and was in Germany for about two years before they got sponsored by a family mm. to come to the United States. Um, my mom uh, was born in Beirut, Lebanon, and mm. my dad met her in the 60s, probably 1960, when he was stationed in Turkey with the U.S. Army um, through various family connections somehow. I, I never get the story right how he ended up meeting her. Um, and then she came to the United States after they got married. Wow. Why did they, was there a reason to leave there? With, the, the, were the countries over their origin? Like uh, your mom leaving Turkey, was there like a... Well, in Lebanon. Oh, excuse um, me. Well, no, I mean, she left Lebanon... Um, because now my dad's living in the United States, so he brought her back uh-huh. to the U.S. Because you know now he's a U.S. citizen. Um, but eventually, her entire family um, left the so, Middle East. So he joined the force, the the service. He was drafted. 
Oh, drafted. Yeah. And then he got shipped to to Ankara, Ankara, Turkey. Yeah. That's and then a, he met her there. He met her not in Turkey, but while he was stationed in Turkey, through some connections of friends saying, "Hey, I know this family." Like one of his friends who was living in LA somehow knew my mom's younger sister and said, "Hey, there's this family, ah. and they've got these, you know, beautiful daughters." Ah. And he's on a leave or something, he went, met my mom, and then they wow. got married. The rest is history. Yeah, and here you are. Yeah, and <laughs> the, all of them left. Yeah, so yeah. here I am, two older sisters. Um, yeah, interesting, very interesting, because my mom's. From Cambodia, uh-huh. and like they had a family sponsor them, so they escaped Cambodia to go to Thailand. Yeah. I believe it was Thailand, and they escaped the communism. Yeah, and then had a family sponsor them, and then they came to uh, Long Beach. Uh-huh. So Long Beach was their landing spot. And my dad's landing spot was New Orleans. Oh, okay. I think at the time um, it was Ellis Island and New Orleans. Wave. This was in the forties. Um, were the landing spots um and then the sponsored family was in california and Ah, that's where you know if you're armenian you're either in california or a small community at that time in massachusetts outside of interesting you know what's interesting is there's um a lot of places california is a big place when it comes to like um, diversity and people from other countries but you have certain spots in california where it's like you know, I, you know, like Garden Grove, Westminster, it's like yeah. all Asian people. And then you have another area where it's just like all Indian people, uh-huh. you know? Well, so Montebello, Glendale, Armenians, Bunch uh, and Fresno became farmers. Armenians uh-huh. were known to become farmers. So, same, yeah, same thing. So, what do you think? Um, you lived in California. Did your parents um, adjust to the California lifestyle? Or, or do you think you were raised... Um, with American values or more like German values? Oh no, we were we were um, assimilated into American values. Um, you know, we were Armenian. My parents spoke. Actually, my dad mostly spoke Russian. Um, did I? Did I said you German. said German because that's where my dad from Germany they came. Okay, to, okay, but. Okay. Um, uh, no, they didn't speak Armenian to us. They tried to assimilate us as, I guess, as quickly as possible. Or so they just spoke assimilate. English? They spoke English to us. Um, so I know very little Armenian anymore. I, uh-huh. I still know a little, but you know, I, I never grew up, or my sisters, being fluent in the yeah. language. And my dad assimilated really quick when he got to the U.S. Because he, he basically did high school in the U.S. And then went to college, um, Fresno State and some graduate stuff. So, I mean, he quickly uh, okay. assimilated as well. Mm-hmm. What is the, um, the, in the culture in which you were raised, what is the, um, like, certain values that they have in those cultures? Like, for mine, right? In the in the Cambodian Chinese culture, it's like you respect your elders, you bow down to them. Um, what they say is, um, you get punished. Um, a lot of like, I feel like Chinese or Asian descent. If you're not Americanized, they don't know how to love. They know how to correct and and punish you to put you on the right path. Yeah. 
but they don't know how to look. How does... You know, I, I don't know if it was, at least in my family, my dad was a worker. I mean, he was off in the morning to work, came home, you know, from work. Um, and then he had his own things. He was a big soccer guy. Okay. Um, and, uh, and then whatever time wasn't spent. So there was not a lot of really close family time because mm. my dad always kept himself busy. Mm. Um, and then he was a, uh, a pli- so he worked all his life with, for Montgomery Wards. Do you remember that store, Montgomery no. Wards? The older listeners will remember <laughs> Montgomery Wards. But he was, he was the head of their um, service department. It was like Sears. Okay. So he was the head of their service department. The, and, but he knew how to repair everything, refrigerator, everything. Uh-huh. And so when he wasn't at work, he was kind of on the side repairing people's appliances. And all, every weekend, you know, he was gone repairing you know, appliances. There wasn't a lot of you know, close family time. Yeah. Uh-huh. So, uh, but, you know, discipline was usually some type of corporal punishment uh-huh. back then. Um, yeah, yeah, But yeah. We, we never got out of hand. Oh, my older sister did. <laughs> so you have two older sisters and you. Yeah. You're the youngest? I'm the youngest. Ah, okay. So growing up in California, what was, um, you went, I mean, you were born and raised there. You went to all your schooling there. Um, what you? What were some things you did in your free time? Um, what, are, so, what were your interests? What were your interests? Yeah, um, skateboarding. Skateboarding. Um, then high school was kind of a little wild. Um, we we actually lived near downtown, and so the high school. Um, I went to you can almost say was kind of the uh, rougher high school maybe and uh, and then kind of grew up and I don't know if you'd remember but I kind of grew up in this area in this era where a lot of um, gangs started developing um, the bloods the Crips. there were the bloods on the west side of town bloods and Crips so I didn't see much of them on our side of town, there were a gang called the F-14s, okay. um, Mexican gang, uh-huh. uh, with the lowriders. I mean, I grew up lowriders at high school, uh-huh. you know, the Vatos with their khakis uh-huh. and bandanas. Uh-huh. Um, that, I mean, that was my neighborhood. Um, and but, but it was interesting when we were younger, because I knew most of these guys, same guys growing up, um, elementary school, junior high, Things were a little scary, but it was funny. Once you got into high school, it didn't matter. Everyone ended up getting along, you know. So there was all these groups, but there was never any type of rivalry between them. So, you know, the guys, you know, they'd be, you know, badass vatos with their lowriders, and you'd be in the back of the lowrider going out to lunch with Uh them, that type (laughs) of thing. So, um, then kind of more of the influence because this is early 80s of my sister she had a punk rock band uh-huh. um, so and so then there was that punk movement and so you know punk rocker shaved head 
um, which kind of went with the skateboarding thing. Um, and then all these various little clicky um, kind of culture things. So from punk rock, um, the mods and scooter gangs, uh-huh. you know, those, those Vespas and stuff with all yep. the mirrors on them. Mm-hmm. Had those. Really? Uh, yeah. I mean, this was California back in the 80s. Uh-huh, so, yeah. you know, you had to be fall into some group. Um, and then, you know, that kind of all more or less died out through college. Um, because at that point, you know, it was mostly just working, getting through college, knowing that eventually. Yeah. The plan was always, uh, I'm going to get into it. I was either going to go... Early on was into one of the military academies or medical school, and then I kind of, kind of decided, you know, I'm just going to stick with the medical side. I was always into the military, though. That was always was that because your dad? Uh, not so much my dad. I, I think it was me. I just liked, you know, growing up watching war movies, making mm. uh, models, you know, tanks and so forth. But a lot of it was, well, a significant part was me and my dad loved MASH. So I grew up MASH, that uh, show with... It was like M dot... Yeah. Okay. Mobile Army Surgical Hospital. Uh You know, it was that that TV series, MASH, which was in the Korean War, and it was a bunch of uh, um, combat surgeons. It was a comedy. Um, Uh But I, you know... We watched that, reruns of that, and I always wow. like, I wanted to be one of those guys. Interesting. Yeah. What is interesting is you basically turned your childhood dream into reality. Uh, Put yourself on that path. I, I don't like saying that, but that's kind of, I, I always knew it was either going to be medicine, early on, medicine or military, and then I ended up being military medicine. Exactly. Yeah. Why don't you like saying that? I don't because it sounds goofy. It sounds you know goofy, but, it, but I think more people need to realize that they can do things like that. You know what I mean? Uh, I think a lot of people have aspirations and they don't make them possible because they get older and they're like, fuck, uh, you know, times I have to get a job. I have to do this. But if you put yourself on that path. Yeah. And, and you know, I recognize at some point when that path was, when I was straying from the path uh, um, and I had to readjust myself. Um, Because right out of high school, I actually um, got accepted to UCLA. So I and like a four point oh student. I was pretty high up there. Four point two. I was like number ten out of a class of four hundred and fifty or something like that. But it was easy, you know. Again, I was I was kind of at the you know the the rough high school. I don't. Mm. It just things weren't. It wasn't high school. Wasn't tough. Okay. I think or you're just they, super smart. I, I was smart, <laughs> but you know, I'm helping my daughter with homework now, and I'm like, I don't remember doing any of this <laughs> stuff, you know, all this geometry and stuff. There, so high school I think was too easy. So I got into UCLA. My uncle, who's only two years older than me, was at UCLA, um, and I was not focused. Mm. I was not focused, and plus, high school never prepared me for what I was going to experience there. And I did not do well in my short time there. And I recognized that. And I said, if I stay here, I'm not going to be able to, you know, 
con you know, I know I'm not going to be able to be a science major or whatever it's going to take to get into med school. Uh -huh. So I left, transferred back home and went to Fresno State. Okay. And then redirected myself. The medical side, did that come from your parents or always you? It was always me. There's no one. There's no. I got a uncle who was a dentist, um, but there was no one else in the family. I mean, this was just kind of you know. Again, my dad was this you know middle class, dirty knuckles type of worker. Yeah. So see, the reason I ask is because I know like a lot of immigrant parents, like Indian parents. And Asian parents, yeah. you're gonna be a doctor. You you're doctor be a, or know, you yeah. Indonesian, and that's yeah. it. You know, yeah. you go be doctor, make money. Yeah. <laughs> that's what they say. But so you, so you leave UCLA. Yeah, I'm sorry, I, I missed. So you just weren't focused. What was what was? I was I was not I was not high school just did not prepare not me prepared, for a college like that. You think it was like the partying, the answer, outside influences, yeah, the it, women? I just didn't study. Okay. Uh, I wish it was the women. It, you know, Lori, uh, Lonnie Anderson. I don't know if you remember Lonnie Anderson. No idea. Her daughter was in our dorm. Um, she was she an actress or Lonnie model? Anderson was this buxom. I don't know what it's a polite way of saying it. Big um, blonde hair. Yeah, big boob, blonde haired <laughs> actress that was in some show back then called WKRP in Cincinnati or something. Uh -huh. I mean, she was this kind of sex symbol uh -huh. well i never saw her but her daughter who looked very much like her uh -huh. was in the so the women of ucla were around there but i was too young stupid <laughs> and you know shy to even experience that part of it uh -huh. um but it was just i i just didn't know how to study gotcha i just didn't know how to study that and, was and you went for medicine i went as a biology major okay yeah and that was probably a mistake Mm. You know, I just went right into the deep of, you know, right yeah, into yeah. the shit. And, uh, yeah. So you went as a biology major. Then you go to Fresno State. You go back home. Yeah. And then when did you decide to join the, the service? That was at, yeah. So was so that after school? That was near the end of school. So okay. So I, I get through, you know, it takes me five years to get to college. Let um, me ask, did you go to Fresno State and stay in biology? No. So I started off at Fresno State in biology and then with doing some more research realized I didn't have to be a biology major to get into med school. Okay. So I got out of biology and uh, got into this environmental health science major. Much easier, but it didn't matter. I still had to take all these other prerequisites and this and that to get into med school, all these mm -hmm. different biologies. But I didn't have to be a science major was the main thing. So. Um, I think that's how I survived, making it through college with a relatively good GPA yeah. and still having, um, you know, all the requirements to get into med school. Was that your plan to be an environmental scientist, essentially, or study that and then go to med school? Through yeah, that? exactly. I mean, I, I just did that to have a major, yes, um, which wasn't biology, yes. Um, but my yeah, I was my intention was never to do any type of environmental health science. I just needed a major, gotcha, and then I could pile on these additions. So it didn't matter. So I was environmental health science, and all those additional classes, I ended up getting a chemistry minor and a biology minor because the of all these extra classes, and that's why it also took me five years to get through undergrad. Okay, so you do that. 
So I do that. Um, I'm doing well. Focus. So the plan for medical school is still there. I didn't, you know, drop out of college. So it was still attainable. Um, and then, you know, medical school requires just like kind of law school. You have to take an entrance exam. It's called the MCATs. Uh-huh, I've heard of that. Yeah. Um, and so I was taking um, a one of these uh, paid um, preparation classes. And so there was about five other uh, Fresno State students kind of in the same boat there in the class with me. And this went on for weeks. And, you know, we're talking, getting to know each other. And one of the guys had tried once already. This was his second attempt. And so he had a little bit of experience um, on his failures, basically. And one of the things he said was, for, two, two things he said was, don't forget to apply to the Texas schools because they're on a separate application and people, because it's a separate application, a lot of Californians, you know, just concentrate mm. on California schools. So he said, don't forget to apply to the Texas schools. And then he also talked about um, there are these military scholarships, the armed services, Navy, Air Force, and Army have these scholarship programs that'll pay for medical school. And I'm thinking, man, that sounds, you know, I'm, I'm going through this, I'm, I'm putting myself through this. Last thing I want is my parents to have to burden this huge you know, expense or take out, I didn't know much about, you know, student loans back then because um, college was cheap back then and my dad was paying for it because he said, as long as you stay at home and I can write you off as a tax refund, yeah. I'll pay for college. So I wasn't even thinking of all the alternate routes to pay for school. Um, I kind of got that military scholarship thing in my head. So, so being... In the military wasn't even part of the plans. It, it wasn't. No, you're right. It wasn't. Ah. It, that. So this is how the military thing came back. Okay. So I get my letter of acceptance. Well, backtrack. So it was fortunate I applied to the Texas schools because none of the California schools even gave me the time of day. Uh-huh. So um, I end up getting um, invited to San Antonio put on a wait list and then eventually getting accepted. And then what that's school is that? here at the Health Science Center, UT San Antonio. Oh, so you went to UT San Antonio? Uh-huh. Okay. Yeah. So um, well it was called the UT Health Science Center. Okay. Um, and that's when the realization was, wow, now I'm accepting the medical school. How am I gonna pay for this? And then remembering this the ah. military stuff. So it's interesting, right outside of Fresno State the the there are recruiters right down the main street so it's air force army and navy and the parking lots in back because everyone always asks me well why'd you join the air force well i parked in back walked in front and the first door i came to was the air force recruiter and i walked into that door Mm. there's no other family tradition or this or that it Uh just happened that the you know, if if the Navy was the first door, I would have walked into. I would have been in the Navy. What's what branch was your dad in? He was in the Army. Okay. Yeah, and he only spent two years. He was just a okay, and that's because he got drafted. Yeah. So you walk into the Air Force, 
And you told them what? I'm a med student. It was, yeah, that, that whole recruiter turns out is designed just for the health professions. Oh, okay. We're trying to recruit doctors or students who are going to be doctors and nurses. So they already knew why I was there. Uh-huh. And so they did, you know, the application, this and that. And then I end up getting. And you joined. Well, yeah, so I, it's funny because it's called a scholarship program, but essentially you're, you're in the military, commissioned as a second lieutenant, and then they pay for school, and then you basically owe them all these years afterwards. I got you. Yeah. So if they paid for school, how many would you have owed them? So they, it was, uh, so I owed them for four years of medical school. For, but that's only after you've completed your residency, after you're a full-fledged doctor. So I ended up um, you know, doing a surgery residency. And then when you're in this health professions program, you have to, so the military has their own residency programs at all their different big hospitals. You have to apply to their residency programs in addition to whatever ones oh, you want to. And then... Um, then they decide if they want to keep you in their programs. Well, by then I was a very good medical student. You know, I, I did well. Medical school came much easier than undergrad to me. So Air Force says, we want you to do your surgery training at our hospital, which happened to be in San Antonio, Wilford Hall on the other side of town, okay. was the Air Force's big training hospital. So then... I would then that's five so there was that was five years of service um, in residency so I was five years of active duty there only after residency those five years I can start paying off the four years of the scholarship so that already adds up to nine years this is where all the years come up <laughs> but after residency of five years of general surgery that's when I said I want to do transplant and so I did two additional years of transplant with still sponsored by the Air Force mm -hmm. but at Mass General in Boston but those two years of transplant training added on to those so four not, years oh, okay, okay. so that turned out to six years so that comes out to seven years plus six more Oh, 13 total. 13 total. And by then, I'm like, wow, I've already got 13 years in. I may as well stay in till I retire because it was only seven more years for <laughs> retirement. So, so it was kind of like you, you got in to have them pay and you got caught in Yeah, like... exactly. Everyone thinks like, oh, and then you're out. Uh -huh. No, I got caught in uh -huh. for all those years. So when you first were... Um, when you first were going to med school, what was your focus? Um, you know, everyone in med school, you know, these are all, no one knows each other. And my focus was, you know, I'm not, I can't flunk out of med school. Okay. So it was, you know, I'm focusing on studying. I'm, I'm sorry, let me rephrase my uh -huh. question. What was your medical focus? Oh, always surgery. Okay, always. Yeah, so that was another thing. So surgery, I always knew I wanted to be a surgeon, even when way back when, from watching MASH uh -huh. and seeing those combat surgeons. Uh -huh. I always thought I was going to be a trauma surgeon. Okay. You know, that's the glamorous thing. Um, but, yeah, after the first year of residency, internship, and we did all these trauma rotations, I quickly discovered I didn't want to deal with 
you know, drunks mm. in the middle of the night. Who get crap car, car accident. accidents, vomiting, uh. puking, screaming, yelling. So um, I knew, I was still in surgery, but I at that time I didn't really realize I, I didn't know what subspecialty okay. I wanted to go into. It wasn't until like probably my fourth year of residency that I just I focused on transplant. So that first year of, of residency and the um, trauma trauma surgeries. Yeah. Um, are you okay with talking about anything? Or no, no, no. What is an experience that you had um, in that trauma unit that you can say like that is was a traumatic experience? I'm assuming you've seen people die. Oh, I've like, seen people die. Yeah. Um, I can't remember. No. No, not way back then. I honestly can't. The, Residency was, and, and you'll, you'll hear it from most surgery residents, um, was all kind of a haze because we were putting in 120 hours a week. Holy yeah, shit. Yeah, I mean, these were, these were back in the times when they didn't have capped hours. Now residents can't put more than 80 hours a week. And we were routinely doing 120 hours, sleeping at the hospital for three days type of thing. Wow. So... Um, yeah, I don't. I don't have a lot of fond memories or strong memories of things that went on uh-huh. during residencies. During residency, um, most of the it was probably more of the war experience are okay. the things that I that I remember most in regards yeah. to that type of stuff. So after your um, your fourth year, you decide you wanted to get into liver and kidney transplants. Yeah. Is that correct? Solid organ, they kind of call it, abdominal organ transplant. And those are just those two? Uh, and pancreas. Okay. Adults and um, pediatric. Okay. So when um, you were doing residency and then you became a surgeon for the Air Force uh-huh. at these hospitals? Uh, yeah, at Wilford Hall. And so how many years did you do that before you got um, deployed for the first time? So I wasn't, so you're not actually deployable until you're a full-fledged staff. So you're completely done with your residency. Done with residency. So I wasn't even deployable until I was, until I completed my transplant fellowship in Boston. And um, so as soon as I finished my transplant fellowship in Boston, the Air Force Wilford Hall on the other side and in San Antonio ended up getting rid of the transplant unit while I was in training. I was the last of the Air Force transplant surgeons. It ended with me. Um, And so the Air Force gave me to the Army. So I was actually from Boston. We lived in uh, D.C. and was at Walter Reed. So actually during that time I was with the Army, I wasn't even attached to the Air Force. So I wasn't even on the Air Force's radar for deployment, which some would argue would be a good thing, non-deployable, because the Air Force gave me to the Army. Army doesn't know what to do with me in regards to deployment because I belong to the Air Force. So I was just kind of in limbo in limbo just doing transplants with the army but it was an awful experience in dc so um, you didn't real quick before i yeah. would love to get to your deployments and yeah. ask you questions about all that but how did you like boston what did you do there you just did surgeries boston yeah and that's where you learned yeah. to do the liver and transplants. so boston so i was at the mass general hospital mgh real prestigious place you know it's like that's the place everyone wants to go and train at at least way you know years ago is that only for the service members no this was so i was 
I didn't wear a uniform when I was in Boston. Mm -hmm. I was still technically on active duty, but on a, in a, some, like on a training grant or whatever. So, and Mass General didn't have to pay for me because I was still on an Air Force salary. But I was, for those two years, you know, more or less a civilian. Mm -hmm. um, and yeah, so Boston was a great experience. I, I, I appreciate Boston more now than I did while we were living there because I was so busy and my wife got to go, you know, had the opportunity to go to graduate school while we were in Boston. Because mm -hmm. um, we had got married, we got married um, two months before we actually left San Antonio and went to Boston. So we were kind of newlyweds in Boston. She's from here? She, more or less, she's actually born in Thailand. Um, she's a military wow. brat. She's a military brat, um, but junior high, high school, college, all in San Antonio. So, and I met her here. So, um, so yeah, Boston, Boston was a great experience. You know, it's interesting. I was having a conversation with a friend of mine um, yesterday and a couple of days ago, just this whole week, and he was just telling me how life is not linear. How um, a lot of times we have this idea of the things we want to do in life, and we believe that it's going to happen in a straight line. But like in your case, you go from California to Texas, not knowing you were going to go ship to Boston. Mm -hmm. You got moved to Boston. Then you were in the Air Force and then they dumped you off to the Army. So everything's just like bouncing everything. around. Yeah, it wasn't what wasn't what my plan was. Yeah. But it ultimately all revolves back and the plan starts over again or and, where it continues where. And you're you're where you need to be yeah. at the time of. the. So the plan was because we loved Texas, was to always get back to Texas. And so that was the original plan, Mass General, come back to San Antonio and work at the Air Force Hospital as a transplant surgeon. That was what the plan was. Okay. And then they closed it, then they got disrupted with the Army. Um, but I ended up getting myself back to San Antonio. Um, the Air Force, that, that was all on my own. You know, so we only spent a year in D.C. at Walter Reed. I finagled this and that to get back to San Antonio. So you went from Boston to D.C.? Yeah. Okay, and then after you left D.C. to come back to San Antonio, were, were you done with all of your training and you were now? Now, yeah, so now when, when, I went, when we went to D.C., I, now I was officially a staff transplant surgeon. And you were done, done with, with all, training's all done now. Now I start paying back or doing my payback. And are you part of the army? No, I was still in an Air Force uniform. So you're back to being part of the Air Force? Yeah, I was still Air Force. I was always Air Force, but attached to the army. Okay. That's why the army didn't know what to do with me. Okay. Air Force was oblivious to me at that point because <laughs> I'm with the army. So, uh -huh. yeah. Okay. So then you're now you're living back in San Antonio. Yeah. And you're doing surgeries here. Yeah, that's a different... So, so again, remember that Wilford Hall shut down their transplant yes, unit. Yes. So part of this thing that I had worked out was working at University Hospital and UT on their team with on under a memorandum of understanding. So I was so I was a free body to them, an Air Force surgeon attached to the Air Force Hospital, but doing all my clinical work at the med school. Okay. So I wore my uniform 
but I never wor- did any work at the Air Force Hospital. Gotcha. Because they didn't need me. They didn't need a transplant surgeon. Yeah. So, but they need a deployable body. Mm. So I was a deployable body for them. So when you were at the UT uh, Medical Center, yeah. Were you doing surgeries there? Yeah, I was on the transplant team. Gotcha. Was, was yeah. there anybody else in the Air Force there, or um, were the only transplant doctor? I in was the, Air the Force? I was the only transplant doctor in the Air Force, and I was the only Air Force doc at the time working at UT. Gotcha. Since then, I kind of I guess through my example, through my experience, the Air Force, uh, you know, would let some of their people work at UT to get experience if things weren't busy enough at their facilities. Yeah. So you were basically the only um, transplant doctor in essentially San Antonio who was in the Air Force? Uh, or in the world. I was the last of it. I was the, I was the last Air Force transplant surgeon. They don't have the, it anywhere ended, it, in the world? It ended with me. Whoa. Now the Army still has, um, I think, one or two that they train, because Walter Reed still has a transplant unit. So the Army still has a transplant unit, but the Air Force no longer has transplant. So how do they go about getting surgeons, the Air Force? You don't train at an actual Air Force like hospital. You train somewhere else, but you can be a transplant surgeon? No. So the Air Force doesn't even have no no more trans. They don't. They don't have any type of you know billeting for or room. That's not for a job. In it's the Air not Force. a job in the Air Force. So you were the I last was the one. last. One. The very last. Very last one. Wow, that's you won't crazy. see that in any type of book like transplant surgeon Abrahamian last one. Uh, but I was <laughs> the last one. It, uh-huh. ended, it ended with me. Were there any that were in the same like class as you that were part of that, or you were no. Wow. I was the only one that wanted to do transplant out of the entire Air Force in that period. So it was a program and they just ended the program? They ended the program while I was gone. Is there a reason why they... I, it was probably too expensive to oh, maintain. Okay. So I don't know. Or, you know, the surgeons. I, there was a big restructuring of the military, military medicine back in the late 90s where they were trying to defer as much out of the military hospitals into the civilian sector, all the retirees and dependents they were trying to get out. So I think they were anticipating a decline mm. in the volume. So that's why they shut the program Does down. the Army, Navy, do they have transplant surgeries? Just the Army does. Oh, they're the only ones, yeah. not even the Marine Corps. Yeah. Marine doesn't have any doctors. Marine Corps doesn't train doctors. Oh. They use Navy doctors. Gotcha, gotcha. So you were here working for how long before you got the call that you would be getting deployed? Uh, months. Oh, okay. Just, but now this was so this was back in two thousand and two thousand and one. Just before the war started. War started three years, two years later. So, um, two thousand and three. So two thousand and one. They I I have this very short deployment. Um, it wasn't even really a deployment. So 2003, um, I get deployed for the first time to Saudi Arabia, Prince Sultan Air Base. It doesn't exist anymore, although I think they're reactivating it. You're just, you're just ending all these different things. The Air Force, the Air Force Surgeon Program, Saudi Arabia yeah. base. PSAB, PSAB, was a big, PSAB was a big base. Tim probably Tim knows PSAB. PSAB was a big base during the first um, Gulf War, um, but PSAB 
in, right in the middle of the Saudi desert, away from anything, it was just desert, um, was still doing something. This was the shadow Iraq war uh, called Operation Southern Watch, where, and most people don't know this, but after the first Gulf War, up until the you know, Iraq war, U.S. was flying daily missions over Iraq. I mean, it was U.S. It was the U.S., France, and England essentially daily combat missions. Whoa! Taking out whatever. So all those years, Whoa. there was still so there was somewhat missions. a war going on without technically exactly. It was a this war kind of this declared. hidden shadow uh. war. So this was kind of the interesting. I always found it interesting knowing that when the war started in two thousand and three. Everything in Iraq was already destroyed from mm. all those years of bombing runs and uh -huh. other missions going on. I mean, everything was, you know, already decimated. Yeah. So that was 2003. This was before the Iraq War. So I get home from that deployment, and there's, there's, I always bring it up, um, kids in deployments. Every time. We only have two kids, but my wife has a baby. I get deployed, mm. and that's what happened. In yeah, so at each kid's. No, I take it back. So it wasn't two thousand and three. This was two thousand and one. That's when nine eleven. Two thousand one. Yeah. So yeah, backtrack. This is two thousand and one. I knew I was getting the dates. So I get back from that deployment from Saudi Arabia. From Saudi Arabia, my my daughter's six months old. I get back on September 1st, 2001. Whoa. Yeah. And it was an interesting thing was while we were in PSAB, we would get these DEFCON, I don't remember what they were calling, um, Defense Force Condition 4, you know, possible terrorist attack. These things were coming across the airwaves and we'd have to go into these different DEFCON modes because people were getting these reports of some major terrorist events going to occur. And Whoa. so we would have to go, I don't know if it's related. I think it is because we, when we were there, we were even told that there's reports of some major coastal city is going to be attacked. But the reports were thinking it's going to be some major Arab coastal city. I don't know. You put two and two together what uh -huh. that means. So I get back September 1st. The first day I... So and then I had two weeks leave. The first day I get back to work is September 11th. And oh, that's right. when all, you know... These, these, these messages, the DEFCON messages... Who's sending the? How, I don't oh, these have. I, I assume these are CIA reports that then come back to the military bases to make okay. sure the personnel stay. You know, no one's allowed on leave. No so one's allowed to leave base. Is it somewhat these. like we, um, let's say, intercepted a message that is terrorist related? That's what. I, yeah, that's something what can assuming. happen in the future. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. That's crazy. Conspiracy theory stuff. <laughs> I'm just saying that's, no, no, you know, we were in the middle of the desert and those were the reports we were getting on in, in um, August and in, mostly in August. Did all of that cross your mind the day the towers were hit? No, I only kind of 
man, that's coincidental that uh -huh. we would get all these, you know, we'd have to go into hunker down mode, mostly all through the month of August because of these reports of some major terrorist attack uh -huh. is going to happen. Wow, that's interesting. Yeah. So towers get hit. You Towers get hit. I had just been deployed, so I was out of the deployment bucket at then. So you had just come back. Yeah, I had just come back, but the military went nuts at when, that point, yeah, yeah, you know. So surgeons, docs, everything um, were just getting sent out, like you know, like you know, someone fired a shotgun, sending all this, uh -huh. all this um, shot out. They were docs were getting deployed to all these bases all over the world without any rhyme or reason and just you know because like well we got to do something boom they send uh -huh. all these docs guys were sent out to these remote bases in uzbekistan and kazakhstan and just left out there so it was kind of crazy they, they just didn't have any any good um method on what to do then things kind of settled down and then they started establishing the afghan hospitals and this and that so then there were these regular deployments and i so, and most of those deployments were still Army was handling them. Army is the, you know, you know, they don't like giving things away. So, like, hey, it's an Army mission. We're going to handle all the military stuff, all the medical stuff. So Air Force wasn't really involved in a lot of the mm. early Afghan um, medical deployments. It wasn't until the Iraq War started that the Air Force got more involved. So the Air Force, I mean, excuse me, so the Iraq War gets started? Iraq War is 2003, yeah. And then that was the first time you got deployed during the Iraq War? During the Iraq War. So it, so... Let, let, real quick. Yeah. In Saudi Arabia, what did you do there? I did one appendectomy and then removed a lot of um, little, I used to call them, I was a pone surgeon, remove a lot of pones from people. What are pones? Kind of like Shrapnel? bumps. No, I, there was no, this was an air base thousands of miles from where the combat, where uh -huh. the bombs were. So it, no, it was. So there's not, nothing. No, there was nothing combat. Oh, okay. In, yeah. There was nothing combat at PSAB. Okay. There may be an injury there. I remember unclogging some British soldier's <laughs> ear from sandstorm and stuff. Uh -huh. That's what the surgeon does uh -huh. at a remote air base. Nothing. So there it was just kind of boring. Just you're there to just be there. Yeah, exactly. Because okay. they need, every base needs a surgeon. Gotcha. Yeah. So when was your first deployment? So the first combat deployment combat. was um, to Iraq in 2004. So again, the army, army more or less staffed all these medical facilities, and and they were called caches now, not mass units, combat support hospitals. And then in two thousand and four, when things you know things are slowly more building up, army finally um, realized that they're stretched too thin, and gave their hospital in Balad, which is about 50 miles north of Baghdad, they relinquished that hospital um, to the Air Force. And so it was a big deal for the Air Force because now that, and the Air Force calls them theater hospitals, that was the first Air Force combat hospital since the Vietnam War. Mm. And because uh, they had never had one, before. they'd never. It yeah, was all dealt with by the all army. dealt with by the army, and so this was so this was a big deal for the air force. You know, we're getting 
to staff a combat hospital mm. or a hospital in a combat zone. First time since Cameron Bay during the Vietnam War. Um, and so, and of course, they're going to go to Wilford Hall, which is their major medical center to staff it. That's from in Boston? No, that's here, San Antonio. So they that still Lackland Air one? Force Base. It was still there, just no transplant. Oh, got you, got Everything you. else, big trauma unit. Gotcha. So San Antonio has three trauma units, University, Bamsey, and Wilford Hall. So, okay. you know, all the Air Force trauma docs are there, the vascular surgery, everything, you know, it's uh -huh. all there. And a transplant surgeon. So, they, so they're looking at the list and they're yeah. like, let's see all the transplant surgeons we have. Well, well, and, now you, and you don't need a transplant surgeon in combat, but transplant surgeon knows how to do liver surgery, kidney surgery, vascular surgery, knows, you know, every inch of the abdomen. So um, the head of trauma there who was tasked to, you know, here's your personnel slots, yeah. you need to fill them. Well, he calls me up, even though I don't, I haven't even been working there, but I've known the guy for years, uh -huh. and asks me to be one of the surgeons in the first deployment to set up the Air Force Theater Hospital. And well, he didn't ask me; he was like, "You're going." Yeah. You know, he, mm -hmm. he asked, but I'm going. And this was a month after my second baby is born mm, yeah right when you, you don't even have a chance to even yeah well i had I, so that was when he asked and then i had two months to mill over it because we weren't going to get deployed for another two months so it was like two months like knowing that i'm going to be gone and then they make they when you get deployed you have to go through all this pre-deployment checklist and goofy stuff and gas mask fitting and all uh -huh. that stuff um so actual deployment was um, August 2004, when we hit the, you know, get on the plane and fly to Kuwait. So before that, I would like to ask, what do you remember and what did you go through emotionally um, with your wife when you got that call and you realized, oh man, it was tough. It's real now. You're going to be seeing combat. And I remember the exact moment when, when he called me, I don't want to mention his name, but when he called me, I was in the OR, and it was in the evening doing a kidney transplant on a Wednesday. And this was at the medical center? This was at University Medical Center. And he says, hey, um, I want you to go Iraq with us. Did you know this guy before then? Oh, I'm, I, I knew him oh, okay. for 11 years before. Okay. I, I'm, you know, a career, one of my guys I trained with. Gotcha. Okay. And now he's kind of in charge of trauma at Wilford Hall. Um, you know, I just, you know, I don't know what happens to your stomach. It just feels like it drops. Yeah. Right? Because I, I always wanted to be a combat surgeon. But I always thought I would be a combat surgeon when I was single and reckless. Mm. And not when I now have a kid, yeah. a wife, and a newborn baby. It's like, man, could you pick a worse time to send me to war? Um, but... And, and my wife um, grew up in the military or in a military family. Yeah. So she, she didn't take it hard. I think I took it much harder. She like, all right. Because she was kind of used to yeah, the Yeah, I think that. she was used to it. Mm. Um, and I think we were, 
Oh no, the first kid we were we were building a house at the same time. I get deployed, um, so I think she was kind of used to it. She at least openly didn't seem to be making a big deal. Now she may say otherwise. Yeah. Like, you know, I hate your guts. I don't know. Um, <laughs> so but you, I felt I felt sick from it. Really? Yeah, I felt sick. It wasn't. I, I didn't feel sick that I had to go to war and scared to death about. No, I felt sick. Like, man, I am gonna be abandoning my family, mm, right? Yes, yes. You know, with a new kid who's a crier and mm. pain in the butt compared to the first one. Mm, and, mm-hmm. Yeah. Wow, I can't imagine that feeling. Just, yeah, it was tough. It's kind of like. Um, you know something that you thought about but it came at a time where you never expected it and i that's like um something that um have you heard of this this is going off topic but just to bring it up real quick there's this speech um that's turned into like somewhat like a almost like a song where it's wear sunscreen have you ever heard of that uh-uh. it's a guy saying like wear sunscreen love your loved ones all this stuff and then he says and realize that um when you're stressing about stuff realize that life's biggest stresses come out of left field they come from nowhere right so anything that you're stressing about just realize that the real stress and the real hardship is going to hit you when you're not looking yeah and that's one of those cases oh and then the other interesting thing was i also had my discharge i had already had my discharge orders so you were already ready to get out. I was ready to get out. Now you can start your discharge process a year to date on when your discharge date's supposed to be. And I, you know, the day I knew a year from now I'm gonna be discharged, I started my discharge paper. Because when I retired from the Air Force, I didn't retire on active duty. I, I did the rest of my time through the reserves. After so your deployment? After my deployment. Yeah, it was, we'll a, get it was a year after deployment. So um, then when I got discharged, I went, so I already had my discharge orders in my hand when I get the order that I'm gonna deploy and go to Iraq. So I thought, I kind of thought that was ironic. Maybe it was a punishment that (laughs) That you're getting out, leaving the Air Force. So when did you put in your discharge orders to the time that you got deployed? Like how far were you into believing that you were going to get discharged well again you can do your discharge orders a year in advance so i think i did my discharge orders in may 2004 knowing i my end of all my commitment was the end of may 2005 Uh and then it was like two weeks after that is when i get called saying you know you're going to iraq so you go to iraq do you go straight into that's a whole adventure in itself see i think people assume that okay you're going to go to war they put you on a plane and you land in the combat zone um i'll tell you i'll be honest i that's what i would have that's my idea that's what i would have thought combat surgeon this guy straight to war yeah so that's what i would have thought so we get on a plane so we went in two waves um the hospital went in two waves there was the first wave that went in that kind of um, were there while the army was still there to kind of see how operations were going. And then the second wave would come in, probably it was about two weeks later, and then army would leave and then we'd set everything up. Gotcha. So the first wave was kind of like a scout group to see how it operates. Um, so I, I think my group um, had the last of the like 40 people for the hospital. Um, and we get 
everything goes out of Baltimore. Um, and so we're on a commercial plane. I think it was run by the CIA. It was called World Airline. I've never seen it. <laughs> I've never seen it. I've never seen this airline anywhere else. But every my two deployments uh-huh. were on World Airline, and the other passengers look like look like civilians. <laughs> exactly. You can tell there's like something civilians. about them. <laughs> so we're on World Airline, and we're bouncing from Ireland to Germany and dropping people off, picking people up. Ultimately, we end up at. Uh, kind of this big Air Force hub for the war at Al-Udeed Air Base in Qatar. Um, Is that Qatar or Qatar? Qatar. Okay. I, they call it Qatar. I, okay, I call okay. it, yeah, I, they, Qatar. Qatar. Got, okay, gotcha. So we, we end up at Al-Udeed Air Base in Qatar um, with our orders that say, you know, you're to report to Balad Air Base, LSA Anaconda, in Iraq. So we get there in like middle of the night and you know like what do we do? And someone says well there's the um, air traffic controller, there's the terminal, go to the terminal. And so we go to the terminal, there's some guy there and says okay we need to go to Iraq and he says all right um, there's no flights and uh, just check back with us every morning while you're here. Like, okay, where do we go? Oh, on the other side of base, there's some billeting things you can go to. So, but you can't take your bags with you. Leave your bags on the flight line um, in this, they had these little areas like where you're supposed to go. Everyone left their bag in the Balad section. So every morning, we go back to the air traffic controller or to the to the terminal. All right, we need to go to Balad, Iraq. Yeah, there's no flights today. So they send you there with the expectation that, that you find your way you, there. Exactly. You have to find <laughs> your way into war. Uh-huh. And so theoretically, we could have stayed in Qatar the entire time. No one knew we were there. There was no way to get a hold of anyone out there, and they had no clue where we were at. I could have stayed in Qatar for those six months, and then my orders are done and fly back, because no one had any clue where we were at. Uh So this went on for three days, and it turns out somehow, I didn't realize it, that I'm the senior officer of this group of 40. <laughs> you didn't realize. And I'm kind of like, you know, I need to talk to someone uh-huh. of some rank because we have to get to this hospital. And, uh-huh. you know, this and that. I'm making a big stink about it. And all these people are looking. And about a half hour later, they say, okay, we've got this C-130 that has some cargo that's going to Balad, but we think we have enough room to get all your people on. And like, and that's how it worked out. All cargo has priority flying into Iraq. Mm. Only after all the cargo is in and there's room are people allowed to go into gotcha. Iraq? So, so the supplies for the people that are there are more supplies, important than supplies, new people going. Supplies are the priority. People less priority mm-hmm. and so finally they secure this c-130 um there was a bunch of kbr 
um, contractors on it and uh, spooky. What's, what's KBR? KBR is that uh, Halliburton. You heard of I've Halliburton? Heard of Halliburton. Halliburton. KBR was the offshoot of Halliburton um, that was the contractor that supplied everything. These are the guys who made the billions of dollars during ammunition. The no, not ammunition. The food. The oh, okay. toilets, you know, all the all the non kind of combat uh -huh, supplies uh -huh. was this company called to Hal set up the cities, or set up the, the city, the yeah. trailers, the this, the that. This was all um, KBR of Halliburton, and gotcha. Halliburton's the big oil company. So uh, there were the all these KBR um, contract, and then some spooky guys, which I think were. Navy SEALs or mm. who knows what, the, CIA, who knows what these guys were. They, why no, you, no one talked to them. Why were they spooky? Because <laughs> you can tell these were really badass killer Like don't type. fuck around with yeah, those guys. Yeah, don't, don't talk to that group of people. Interesting. They were military, but they had facial hair and beards like the spooky people. Yeah. <laughs> spooky people. We weren't allowed to have facial uh, hair. These the, guys the were allowed, allowed. These guys were allowed to do whatever they want, wear whatever they want. All these customized weapons. Oh. So, or they were mercenaries because there were mercenaries out there too. Wow. Um, so yeah. So so we that's we get on the C one thirty six hour flight into Balad and then yeah. So you get into Balad. We get into Blood. That's uh, August, late, late, late August, um, and then you know, then we set up the Air Force Theater Hospital. That's that video. We'll talk about that. Uh -huh. um, and then um, we're there for six months. But so again, this is a historic thing. This is the first Air Force Combat Hospital, and we were very good at what we did while we were there. Um, number of mass casualty things, um, the Fallujah campaign. Uh, what was that? So the Fallujah campaign was uh, for, started on the fourth of November two thousand and four. That was when the Marines um, went into the city of Fallujah. And the significance of the Fallujah campaign was this was the biggest urban combat operation of the U.S. since the Vietnam War, you know, of uh, um, the Way City Battle of Vietnam. This was the, this was the biggest um, operation where the U.S. is going into a city and fighting door to door mm. since the Vietnam War. And the Marines were spearheading that. And so... <clears throat> Our hospital, which is outside of Baghdad, essentially took all the injuries throughout Iraq that originated outside of Baghdad. All the injured that occurred in Baghdad stayed in Baghdad at the Army Hospital at Ibn mm, Sina. Okay. But because it was so um, difficult or dangerous to fly choppers out of Baghdad with wounded um, injuries that happened in Baghdad stayed in Baghdad. Every Everything other else. injury in the country came to the Air us, Force Base, the Air Force Theater Hospital. Okay, so you did you ever see like combat where you're in the middle of a war zone, or you just dealt? With no, well, so we um, not 
not necessarily small arms fire, but we were routinely rocketed and mortared at that facility. It was it had the reputation of being the the most rocket or mortar attacks than any other base in Iraq. Is that because you think it was because it was a medical? It, well, no, because the medical part was only a small portion. This was a big um, oh, okay. airfield, and the it was the army's main logistical hub. That's where all the basically all the supplies um, okay. mm -hmm. came into there, and then from there went out. So there was a lot of people in that base. So I guess it was more or less an easy target. Plus, it was in Saddam Hussein's old um, Air Force Academy. Mm -hmm. And it was all surrounded by farms and farmland and the Tigris River ran it. So it ran by it. So it was easy outside of the base for, you know, insurgents, whoever to, you know, secretly hide in the ah, and okay, shoot okay. stuff into it but no but we never got involved in any type of you know, street fighting type uh -huh. of thing um, but you know rocket attacks and mortar attacks and you would on have a to daily basis what alarms would go off we'd have to go into these concrete shelters and wait till it was all clear sometimes you're in them for three hours waiting for all clear to happen throwing all your uh, body armor and everything. Uh -huh. Ballistic vests, all yeah. that stuff. So um, um, during this time at the theater hospital, or what is it called the theater hospital? They call it the Air Force Theater Hospital. 332nd um, Air Expeditionary Wing, uh, Tuskegee Airmen. Um, I got the tattoo here to prove it. <laughs> um, uh, so we were part of the Tuskegee Airmen. You've heard of the Tuskegee. Yeah, the, the, it was that all black fighter combat unit during World War II, the Red Tails. Red, they, I've the, seen the, the movie. Red Tails. Mm -hmm. It's that. Okay. We were technically the 332nd Red Tails, mm. Tuskegee Airmen. So we were one of these few historic um, historic uh, Air Force units. Uh -huh. So, uh, yeah. What city was this again? It was called Balad. Balad. I, but it, so that was the nearest city. Gotcha. The, we were still somewhat outside of the, the city. Okay, so during this time you're doing just what type of surgeries are you doing? All combat all. related, all traumatic. But it has to be it has to do with combat related for the abdomen. Oh no, everything. Everything. Yeah, so we we took care of everything. Now the so we had we had neurosurgeons, we had orthopedic surgeons, we had oral maxillofacial surgeon, ENT surgeon. Um, three trauma surgeons. I was considered the vascular surgeon. And that is what? Taking care of the blood vessels okay. and so forth. Um, and we had a cardiothoracic and a thoracic surgeon. So the Air Force you know, realized the significance of this and staffed it heavily with these subspecialties. Mm -hmm. In fact, we had more subspecialties um, and we all knew each other. We had more subspecialties at the Air Force Theater Hospital than the big um, military hospital in Germany at um, Launchstuhl where we were sending these patients afterwards. So we actually mm. had more capabilities from a specialty standpoint than where we were sending them after we operated on yeah. them to the, to, the, to, the, recovery. to the recovery hospital. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> so you but we were doing most of the injuries were always orthopedic you know legs blown off okay. broken legs from blasts um, so everyone had it was always multi 
uh-huh. trauma type of thing. But you know, we'd help out the orthopedic surgeons in, in ec- putting external fixators on and so forth. And so you kind of just you're you're what you do whatever needs to be done rather than you're only doing one thing. Somebody exactly, else is only like doing one thing. you know, I'm going to be in my trailer. Call me if there's a belly. In, no, mm. you. You're there, so you're, helping out everything. Are you doing surgeries on a daily basis? We were, yeah, no, we operated daily because um, we took care of sixty percent of our our casualties were civilian. Wow. Yeah, so Iraqis wow. or who were just I, caught in crossfire. Always caught in crossfire. Wow. Caught in crossfire, blown up while waiting in line for something. You know the no things you hear: way. the roadside bombs and the suicide bombers. So sixty percent was of the wounded were civilian and then a small percent were enemy enemies prisoner we call them epws enemy enemy prisoners of war um and and iraqi national guard and then our troops you know british and mostly british and americans um so the civilians stayed at the theater hospital they they couldn't go anywhere after we operated on you them. Can't ship them they, the there was nowhere to ship them to, mm-hmm. so they stayed with us. And no one needed just one operation; everyone needed multiple operations. So we were constantly, you know, we were operating on the fresh patient that came in, and then when we were done with that, we would reoperate on the old patients on a daily basis. There was always something, wow. even if there was no direct combat happening that day, there were always other operations that had to be done on these, you know, these other wounded that still had open wounds that you were washing out uh-huh. and putting bowel back together. So there was always something going on. I'm assuming you saw a lot of people with blown off limbs and... That was a common, you know, you said bilateral it was the most amputee. It was always extremity injuries. Our guys had their body armor, so they were coming in, you know, alive. Mm. They'd have they'd have wounds, but body armor would keep them alive, and then their limbs would blow off. Mm. Um, the civilians didn't have that, so mm. civilians were coming in. If they didn't die out there from a thoracic injury, they were coming in with multiple, you know, belly injuries, extremity injuries, and. Babies, children. We had babies, blo- faces blown off, no burns. Way. We didn't do burns well. No one did burns well. So, you know, if, if there was one thing you could avoid during the war was to get burned because there was no good burn facility or wow. thing to do. So we kind of dreaded those, those guys who got burned. So do you mind if I get into more detail? I'm curious. Sure. Um, when it comes to like um, somebody getting their limb blown off, let's say a blown off leg, and they they get rushed to your hospital, what is the um, like course of action when something like that occurs? So um, luckily, all these various they call them FOBs, forward operating bases, have um, triage units. So if it's let's say the easiest thing is if it's our guys. One of you know one of our guys that got um, injured out in the field. Usually it would be um, chopper or ambulance, or their guys would throw them in the Humvee, take them to the FOB, 
there was always, most of these FOBs had a small surgical unit, usually it consisted of a surgeon, an anesthesiologist, and an orthopedic surgeon. They would do whatever they can to control hemorrhage, put tourniquets on. That's on the way to... That's before, most of the time before they got to us. Okay. So, um, and then the air ambulance service, which was interestingly modeled out of San Antonio because our trauma guys were accustomed to this air ambulance pattern, which works very well, rearranged the entire Iraq air ambulance service to mimic San Antonio. Interesting. The choppers would then um, fly them to us and then we would start doing the definitive surgery, you know, take the tourniquets off, stop the bleeding, fix the fracture, pack the wounds, open the belly up, take out the packs. Because oftentimes if they were gonna do it, they would just open the belly, throw packs in, pack sponges in to stop the bleeding, close them really quick and send them. They, they didn't have the transfusion capabilities or anything out there. You're so saying they the other people. The other people, they knew their job was rapid resuscitation um, and immediately get them to us uh -huh. and then we would or even if they did operate we would re-explore everyone mm. um, open them back up do more definitive surgery um, stabilize everything re-operate if necessary and then get our troops onto an aerovac flight and fly them immediately to germany mm. where then they would go through another round of everything okay now the civilians would oftentimes come directly to us through ambulances coming into the gate they and weren't choppered in were those all ambulances through the um u.s forces it was a combination like it was a combination i think of um civilian ambulances it was hard for a civilian ambulance to get through the gate. That's what I'm saying. Yeah, so it was um, more often military ambulances that happened to be out there when mm. a blast occurs or sent out there because U.S. troops are around mm -hmm. and throw the civilians in there. Mm -hmm. When stuff would happen to um, soldiers, like let's say an extremity gets blown off, um, so they do, I'm assuming they throw a tourniquet on them um, and then they bring them to you. Mm -hmm. And you were mentioning like opening them up, but is that only for like body damage or you would open them up, their body up, even if they got an extremity blown off? It depends on the, the injury pattern, you know, and a lot of these were blast wounds um, and it was just, you know, the bodies are peppered with uh -huh. holes. Yeah. And, and so we had a very low threshold in opening up the belly. What does that mean? Um, if, if, if we, cause most of these guys by this time are out of it, they've got breathing tubes in, okay. so they're not being, they're not able to tell us, oh yeah, my belly hurts mm. or not. All we see are their legs blown off and they've got a rock in here and they've ah, got this so sticking out. So we don't know what deep injuries occur. Mm. So, um, so we would, we would often operate on suspicion of an abdominal injury or uh -huh. something. We did have a CT scanner though in the tents. This is all tent hospital, by the way. These were all tents, but we had a CAT scanner. Were there ever times when, I mean, this is a tough question to ask, but where you made a mistake in opening somebody up that didn't need to be? 
I don't, no one, you, you never look at it that way. Okay. It's like, How do you, look at it? you always look at it as like, I'm going to do whatever it takes to keep this guy alive. And it's better to have a negative exploration than miss an injury. Yes. So it was, it, it was just all part of the course, yeah. you know, so you, you'd never, and you're not going to hurt a guy just by, by, by a, open. look opening their belly, looking in and then closing them. Uh huh. Yeah. So you you're going to hurt them by missing something. Is is like you know the game operation, you know, where you, you like you you can see all the vital organs. Uh-huh. When you cut somebody open in their stomach and let's say you open it up like a like a flap, like uh-huh. there's two flaps on each side. Yeah. Is it like that? Like you could see perfectly everything. You can see the majority of everything. The pancreas you, is kind of hidden back there. The kidneys are hidden. Uh-huh. But, you know, stomach, intestine, liver, spleen, all of that's right there wow interesting uh, were you ever um any of that stuff ever make you like queasy or anything like that no yeah been doing transplants for too long before then mm. so um another uh, one qu- go for it <laughs> um there was a there was a vehicle suicide bomber that actually drove up to the east gate which was actually right next to the hospital what is the east gate? Um, well, I, I just the east gate of the oh, base. The east yeah, gate. the east oh, gate, okay, okay. and the hospital happened to be right by the east gate. They actually put the hospital right next to the um, to the wire to the fence, and that's why it was always an easy target. Instead of putting it way like in the middle of base where uh-huh. it'd be less uh-huh. hospital, they put the hospital right by the. <laughs> On the edge. So there was a, there was um, and there was a bunch of Iraqi soldiers and workers that were coming in every morning um and so it was predictable for this car bomber car bomber blew all these guys up um including himself obviously and a bunch of people came in injured but they also brought the dead in they usually don't bring the dead to the hospital the dead go straight to wherever the morgue was i didn't even know where the morgue was but for some reason they brought some of the dead in i guess because it was so close and it wasn't queasy it was just an interesting um the someone's femur the big femoral head the big bone in the attached to the hip to attach to the hip um was not attached to his hip it wasn't even at his body but was impaled in some other guy's back whoa yeah it was just the bone no person attached to it impaled wow. into some other guy's back the whole bone was the guy alive no, that, that was in his back dead too. these mm-hmm. guys were all dead Wow. Yeah. And you saw all of that. Yeah. But it, it still wasn't necessarily queasy. It was like, oh, that's interesting. You had seen it all almost, right? Mm. Can you tell me about any stories um, where you had to operate on either soldiers or children or civilians or where that really stood out to you as... You know, we operated on so many people that that um, first week of the Fallujah campaign, we did 600 operations in in a 10-day period. We never knew anyone's names. Everyone was marked with a Sharpie pencil, a number that someone else kept track of on a whiteboard. So everyone was by numbers. But there was one Puerto Rican soldier. Um, He ended up being nicknamed the indestructible um, Melendez Diaz because um, obviously his name was Melendez Diaz um, 
And he just happened to come to us at lunchtime, roadside bomb, and everyone was out at lunch. I was still there hanging out. And so he comes, they rush him in. He didn't even come by a chopper. I think they threw him in the back of a Humvee. And he was blowing up pretty good. Um, and he comes right. And the nice thing about having control of the hospital is you can you say, look, don't even stop in the ER. Because we had this little ER area. Don't even stop in the ER. Let's just go straight to the OR. You know, you can't do that here. You can't, like, mm. walk through that door and go right onto the OR bed. Well, we had that ability to put someone directly onto an OR bed. And you guys knew there's no I, there point. Was, yeah, there's no point wasting any time. This guy needs to be on the OR asleep and we need to start hanging whole blood and start operating on this guy. Um, so Melendez Diaz, little, little Puerto Rican guy, um, young too. Um, his right leg was all blown up. I remember we were po pulling um, pieces of his BDUs. The, that's what we call the battle dress uniform or DCUs, desert uniform. The buttons um, from deep inside his leg. All you know, it was that all these pieces of buttons that got blown in. So his leg was just all mush. His belly was blown open. He had a rock this size embedded in his pelvis. The size um, is about what, a golf ball? Maybe uh, it was like softball. Like that fist. was just one rock. There was multiple rocks we were pulling out. His pelvis was completely shattered with rocks just embedded in them. Um, but he came in alive um, at, despite all of that. And so um, when we have these really bad injuries and you know they're going to exhaust the blood bank, um, we'll do this overhead, the entire base, a call for whole blood, for blood volunteers. And you'd be amazed. I'm going to start um, You'll be amazed how quickly those soldiers will immediately show up to the hospital and drop their sleeve to get their um, blood drawn. And we'll give the blood direct, because everyone knew their blood type. We'd take the blood and directly start giving it to these guys. Um, and so we're operating on Melendez-Diaz. We had two surgeons um, operating on his belly. One of the ortho guys came back from lunch um, and started operating on his leg. And, uh, and, and we were able to keep him alive and, and get him stabilized enough um, to ship to Germany um, I didn't think, I don't even think we reoperated on him. We just basically said, okay, he's stabilized enough, get him on the next Aerovac flight, CCAT flight to Germany. Um, and the only reason, the, the significance, why I only know two guys' names, but why I only knew his name is somehow I l did some search and discovered that he won, he was still alive, and that he spent the next year in a bed in Walter Reed, um, having undergone 20 additional operations. And there was a picture of him um, with George Bush 
pinning on his um, Purple Heart, and and he's so there was only two soldiers that I ever knew their names that we operated on. One who died um, when he was in Germany, um, and then Melendez Diaz. We. And I don't, I'm not trying to boast or, and I don't have other facts except I, I kind of know other hospitals. Um, that entire six months that the first group was at the Air Force Theater Hospital, me and my fellow surgeons, we never lost a single coalition, you know, Air Force, Army, Navy, Brit, whoever, we never lost a soldier that we operated on. Everyone had 100% survival out of all those thousands of operations we performed. Whoa. We had a 100% um, survival rate in the guys we operated on, meaning they survived to be flown to Germany. Mm. What happened to them after that, I have no idea. But if they came to us alive, they left, they alive. left alive. Nobody died on the operating no table. No one died on the operating table. Wow. I, and I, so I can't imagine there was, there's ever been a more successful combat hospital in the world in history Holy than shit. the Air Force Theater Hospital during that first six months of there. Wow. Who else can boast 100% survival rate? That is fascinating. Yeah. And to say you are a um an iraqi war hero without the designation is um no we never got any medals for that never no, we did medals. get it we get we got a um a presidential uh unit commendation award but no one really knows that statistic mm -hmm. other than the surgeons that were there mm -hmm. you know it's it wasn't ever anything ever published by the air force or because no one really kept track of that there was no medical records there was no good follow-up even when we operated on these guys um the only way that the next team knew what we did was with sharpie we wrote on their bellies everything we did and what we needed done next because medical records never followed these guys they'd get blown off in the on the tarmac you know, loss, there was no way to track them. Everything was just handwritten with a Sharpie on the guy's bodies on what needed to be done. Mm -hmm. That was so, you know, there was no good tracking. Well, I'm throwing it out there. Thank you for your <laughs> sure. service. You are a, um, a hero and that is an understatement. Well, you're welcome. Um, so the other guy. The other guy died. What, what that's was the, the, what that's was a tough story. Is that something you don't want to? Get into. He, I understand. It. Well, no, he that was he died in Germany, and it, no one really knows why he died. That's this, this is one of these things that you have no idea on how significant these blast injuries are, or what other organs or anything else um, would how they get affected. He um, was a medic and his Humvee got blown up and he came in with his um, boots still on but his um, 
basically dangling off a shred of skin. So he had a stump with his boot still dangling on. And that appeared to be his only isolated injury, you know. Um, and he's talking to us, Doc, am I ever going to play softball again? And, you know, we're joking with him. But we said, we got to take you to the OR and take your foot off and clean your wound. And, and, and that's all it seemed to be. So we do that. And, um, and then we ship him off. And, and he's still sleepy. You know, we don't, I think we keep him asleep. I'm sorry. I think we keep him asleep with the breathing tube because he's immediately going to go on to the flight to Germany. There was a flight going on. So um, he goes on to the flight to Germany, and like a day or two later, we get a report back from Germany that, you know, specialist so-and-so um, was brain dead. But he was talking to you when he got he there. He was talking to us. So the, the only thing we could surmise was he developed and it wasn't appreciated at that time because sometimes the symptoms are delayed um something called fat emboli syndrome what is that it's and it happens in long bone <clears throat> injuries you know the the inside of the bone is bone marrow yes. but a lot of fat okay. and with a significant injury or a blast or just a bad fracture that fatty tissue can get into the bloodstream and then basically deposit either in the lungs and cause severe lung injury or into the brain um, and basically block off blood vessels. And it may not be a, may, that's this is the only thing, because we actually had a conference afterwards to try to figure out what happened to him. And that was the only thing we could surmise is that he sustained uh, fat emboli syndrome that eventually resulted in you know, cutting off blood flow to his brain. Interesting. I, I have no idea, and I'm an idiot for even asking this question, but something that came to mind when you said brain dead was the possibility of maybe him being asleep on the flight but not getting oxygen through the tubes, or it's, is that not even... We, but we had, we had no way to track that, mm. you know, we had no way to, you know, the, these the soldiers would have, there were these... Um, critical care teams made up of flight surgeons, anesthesiologists. I mean, each bed was basically a mini ICU. So there was someone monitoring them the entire time. I mean, these were specialized. Air Force had these specialized flying ambulances that had all these personnel on there. So I, I can't think, or we didn't, the conclusion was, there was no good conclusion. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, that it was probably something has to do with yeah. the, the, blo uh, the, Some, the blood, yeah. the fat in the blood. But it, it could have been anything. Um, so during your time, were there ever instances where you had a... Actually, that question might be thrown out the window because you said anybody who came in alive left alive. As far as... I mean, there were Iraqis that died. Okay, as far as um, U.S. soldiers or soldiers um, like British soldiers that you were saying? All, all, all our okay. co coalition forces there. Were there ever any... I gotta pee. Go pee. Yeah, go for it. <laughs> Pause this. We'll, we'll get back when he gets back. Okay, he's back. So, I was going to ask you, um, so you obviously um, did surges on a lot of civilians. Were there ever times when you had um, a civilian come in who... You knew, 
I mean, my assumption is you always try to save the person, but were there instances where you knew there was no way they were going to survive, but you operated on them anyways? Yeah, so um, remember when I said earlier, don't get burned during war? Mm. So there was this guy, all we knew his name was Mohammed. Everyone's name was Mohammed. Um, and he was a shopkeeper in, in Baghdad. I don't know how he left Baghdad, why he came to us. And a roadside bomb or some you know bomb in the city center went off. And he was, um, he was burned bad. Both legs, torso, both arms. Basically, I think it was only maybe his head. Not that, and we all knew. There's that story about um, if you ever get burned, and you're able to calculate the percent of your burn because it's basically the palm of your hand represents one percent. Okay. So it's a stupid story, but if you get burned and you discover you're eighty percent burned, turn around and walk back into the fire. So, you know, Mohammed must have been 90% burned. And, you know, what can we do? He he's, comes to us alive. So, um, and again, we're not a burn unit. There's no burn unit, but we all were trained in how to work on burns. Um, but the long of the short of it was, you know, this, this poor guy was with us for three months. And we're just, unfortunately, just whittling away. At him, it starts off with you know both legs below the knee, then above the knee, and we end up disarticulating his hip because the infection from these burns because we can't cover him, he had no skin to skin graft, and we don't have any of these you know composite type grafts, there's nothing we could do. So, but he was alive, so he's just, until he ultimately so he's kind of just sitting there with his body infected because of the burns, just yeah eating away at him and and we were we I can't tell you how many operations all of us did on the guy every day someone was operating on him to clean things up or remove this much tissue that went on for three months and the procedure is if they're alive continue to operate you know yeah we but even you guys knew like we we knew but you know there's he's alive we can operate we're gonna do whatever we can to keep him alive yeah you know, we didn't have any type of ethics committee and, mm. you know, we had no family members that we knew of. I don't know if any of his family even knew he was alive. Wow. You know, he's from Baghdad and he gets shipped to us to say, you know, stop things or so, you know, surgeons, we do what surgeons do. Yeah. And he ultimately died after three months of agony. Wow, that's crazy. So, <clears throat> you did your deployment... Um, you were there for how long? Six months? About six months. And then you were done? Then I got home, um, basically went on terminal leave because I had all this leave stored up till I got discharged on active duty, discharged from active duty, May of 2005. And then after a small break, um, then finished the rest of my years off till retirement in the reserves. I never got deployed again after that. Real quick, when you were um, deployed in, um, well, Saudi Arabia? No. Oh, when you were at the um, the theater, hospital. the Air Force Theater Hospital. Um, there at the Air Force, excuse me, the Air Force 
Theater Hospital. Did you always do surgeries there or did you ever do any on the field? No, we always did surgery okay, there. Okay, so you were always They there. would not, so there were certain, you know, things sometimes would get boring and we would find adventurous things that we weren't approved to do, to do, but. Tell me a story. Uh, well, that wasn't necessarily me. <laughs> um, you know, we'd, we'd join up with some tank units and go on tank patrol or something. Mm, One okay. of the guys actually somehow um, got in with some special ops crew and, and left base on a chopper. Chopper ends up breaking down somewhere. Um, and he was scared shitless because you know he wasn't supposed to leave. Mm. No one ever really found. He told us the story. No one ever really found out about it. Mm -hmm. um, but no, all operating was done at the theater hospital. Okay. Did you have to ever have to fire a weapon when you were out there or anything like that? Not at anyone, but we fired. Um, we had access to a bunch of weapons, and we would. There was a firing range somewhere that we'd sometimes go out shooting, but we didn't oh, okay. shoot it. No, nothing. No, I didn't kill anybody. <laughs> Did you? Um, it's very interesting because I get to see by talking to people um, like you and Jr. and Tim, I get to see um, different um, points of view of war. Yeah. Right. So I'm sure Jr.'s got a whole different fascinating. Yeah. Yeah, his stories are very, um, yeah. very fascinating, but. Um, were there ever instances like um, when y'all were getting bombed, the base was getting bombed, where you thought, I could die? Oh, yeah. So one of the promises I, I told my wife um, when I left was, you know, cause sometimes when you're at a base, you got that security that, hey, I'm in a base, nothing's going to happen. Mm -hmm. And you have no clue when a mortar's flying over the fence or mm -hmm. rockets coming um, and, and, you know, just land right in front of you. Um, so I promised her I'd wear my body armor, you know, 24 seven. And I did, I was like one of the few guys constantly wearing their body armor. And I don't know if anyone looked at me like, dude, what are you wearing your body armor for? We're on base. Um, but there was always that, you know, and that never let up, you know, even after six months, it was not, I, I never got complacent about it just was your routine it was my routine my helmet and body armor now you couldn't do that when you're operating but every time i left the tents you know even walking back to the trailers I, i'd always have my helmet and body armor mm -hmm. on so again you know no one knew when uh mortar was coming over and were there soldiers that got killed oh there of... was one famous guy um he's still on the news because he's one of these um airman colfage He's one of these guys that you heard about that set up some type of fund to pay for the border wall. I don't know if you okay. heard this story yeah. about this guy who's trying uh -huh. to get money. Um, he was in, this was the week we got there. I shouldn't have mentioned his name. But we're, the week we got there, he was in this kind of recreation area way in the middle of base. Um, and it's a big base, um, you know, like where the shops are, the, you know, the BX where you can buy stuff. And he's just walking and this, I don't know if it was a mortar or rocket propelled grenade from who knows how many miles away came and just landed two feet from him, blew off both his legs and his right arm. I mean, just out of nowhere. No one heard anything. No one, boom. I mean, that's, that's. Almost like fell out of the sky. Just fell out of the sky. It could happen at any time. Mm. Did you operate on him? 
um, he, he was while the army was still there, while the oh, first okay. crew was there. And so the army actually operated on him. Ah, I see. So what is a, a story that you have or, or something you remember where you felt, I could die? It, there were any one of those. Or was it just always it was in the mostly, back of your mind? It was, it was mostly the flight into Iraq. It was <laughs> like, I'm going to die on this flight. You know? Uh -huh. And the reason... It was always on the back of the mind, but the flight to Iraq, I guess every Air Force has a different technique on um, how they approach a combat airfield. Yeah. I think the Australians um, come in like six miles out and come in, Tim would probably know this, come in six miles out and stay very low to try to, you know, buzz across too fast for anyone to lift up a rocket-propelled grenade. But the Air Force, at least this guy's, these guys' techniques, they come in very high, and once they're right over base, they come in steep. And, you know, this is an old C-130, you know, the old prop uh -huh, things. Uh -huh. and, and so when we're out, the guys are saying, okay, everyone, put on your helmets and body armor. We're, we're coming in. And then, you know, we're like, okay. And then it's like... This dive in, like, what the hell is going on? That was probably one of the scariest moments. Is that is that landing onto base? Jr. was telling me a story about when he was, um, I I think was it Jr. I believe it was Jr. But telling me a story about how he was in a um, uh, after he had gotten out, you know, he had instances where he thought he could definitely die, and then he had gotten out, and then being on the helicopter. Um, they were like doing back and forths uh -huh. and he thought like he almost fell out of the helicopter like holy shit I've been shot at a bunch yeah. of times and all this and I'm going to die in a helicopter exactly. crash so um, you get out and then so you go in reserves and at that time when you're in the reserves for the last bit yeah were you doing surgeries here back at the medical center? The reserves were nothing yeah so I so when I got out of the air force um, off of active duty I, I basically just went from wearing my uniform to putting civilian clothes on and working and working at UT and going did... on permanent faculty there. Okay. Um, reserve duty at that time was mostly just training stuff. Mm -hmm. um, Air Force docs and the reserves were no longer getting deployed. They didn't need, you know, the wars were kind of winding down. So they didn't need um, reserve docs for deployments. They had enough of the active duty guys. So my reserve time was whatever, two weekends, two weekends a year doing training stuff at SAMC or at, at Wolford Hall. So it wasn't, it wasn't anything. And so you were doing surgeries. Did you go back to strictly liver transplants, kidney transplants? Yeah, once, once, yeah, after deployment, it was back to usual job, kidneys and livers. Uh-huh. And those are the two main things you do? Two main things, but we do a lot of um, uh, pancreatic surgery for pancreatic cancer, liver surgery for liver cancers, and kind of a sundry of other stuff. So in addition to transplants, we do a lot of um, cancer surgery. Okay. Um, so now I'm curious. The, the procedure you do now, is that considered a, I'm assuming it's pretty common? Liver transplants? Yeah. yeah. Is it considered a, like, um, like just an everyday surgery where the survival rate's super high or? It's, yeah, there's nothing experimental about kidney or liver transplant. Um, yeah, survivals are very good. 
Um, what is the survival clot. rate of those? Do you know? Kidney transplant from a living donor survivals like first year survivals like ninety nine percent. Oh shit! Yeah, okay. I mean, really good survival. Uh -huh. And liver transplant, you know, you're also ninety percentile for first year survival. Survive as the years go on, survival obviously decreases, but it's not necessarily things. It, it's rarely from the operation. Mm. It's other stuff, you mm -hmm. know, progression of heart disease. You know, there's mm. all these guys are sick from something else. Progression of heart disease or infection or something like that. But it's not, it's not surgery. No, gotcha. no one dies or extreme, maybe on the liver side, rarely in the operating room. Everyone survives the operating room. It's something happens afterwards. Gotcha. So we have how many kidneys? Two? Two. And you only need one to survive? You only need one healthy kidney to survive. Mm. Okay, so what is the job of the kidneys? Oh. <laughs> I'm ignorant on these things. So. The kidney is one of those um, organs that, um, that eliminate waste from your body. Um, okay. You know, things that accumulate wasteful products, byproducts that accumulate in your bloodstream. The kidney is a filter. And filters blood. for the blood, uh -huh. filters the blood, and also removes um, fluid, you know, because everything you drink in has to get okay. eliminated. Uh -huh. And the kidneys are what handles that uh, fluid volume. Uh -huh. So I'm curious, my dad, I believe he thinks it's possible. He's had it twice before, kidney stones. Uh -huh. And he thinks he might have another one now. Sure. Kidney stone is a buildup of calcium. It could be calcium is the most common, but kidney stones could be of different different things. Do you do stuff stones. like that at all? Uh, urologists generally deal with kidney okay. stones. Have you ever had to transfer kidney and found stones? Um, we've discovered them by X-ray afterwards, mm. um, but it's it's not the same. It, it doesn't have the same symptoms like oh, in a kidney transplant because kidney transplant after you take it out doesn't have any nerve supply to it doesn't feel pain um, and then the ureter that the kidney stone travels through is extremely short so it's easy for the stone to pass on a kidney transplant so not the same what do you mean if it's easy for it to pass well because the the stones develop within the kidney yes. then get into the collecting system where the urine store and then has to travel down that real thin ureter uh -huh. that's what it's referred to as pain. so the pain occurs when people talk about severe yeah. pain is when that stone is trying to pass from the kidney into the bladder uh -huh. through the ureter through that urine tube that's where the pain from a kidney stone occurs uh -huh. And they call it passing a stone. But you're saying it's easy for it to pass? In a kidney transplant. I'm confused. Because we, the kidney transplant, the ureter is so short, you know, we cut after them. The, after the transplant. Oh, we I cut see. them short, so it just has a very short period. Oh, so short. the pain is... They don't feel pain. Gotcha. It, and, it's, and it's pretty rare. I, I can only think of a kidney stone, like one or two, that we've discovered or heard mm. about after a transplant. It's not a common mm -hmm. thing. Um, when it comes to um, like um, surgeries, when it comes to kidneys and livers, are those things that um, could potentially be like rejected by the body? Do oh, you see that yeah. often? Not often, but that's that's every person who gets a transplant has to be on anti-rejection medication. Okay, and there's generally three common medications for anti-rejection, 
And the whole purpose of the anti-rejection medications are to decrease your body's immune system so your body doesn't attack mm. the kidney or liver, which it perceives to be foreign. Um, so this is where you have to, you know, you can give a patient a ton of rejection medications and they'll never reject. But now your immune system is so low, you're going to develop all these infections. Wow. So you, it's, it's got to be this balance, just enough medication so you don't reject, but not too much where you're overwhelmed by infections and die. Uh -huh. So that's kind of this, that tricky balance in transplant mm, is, is juggling the the immunosuppressive drugs and that's why transplant patients are you know stay with the transplant centers for the life I mean I I'm still I still see patients and interact with patients that I transplanted 20 years ago it's not like other surgeries like a gallbladder where a surgeon operates removes it, and then they never see that patient again we see our transplant patients for years and years they stay with us why is that because we have to monitor uh, all this. They can't leave us. So is it possible that they can get, their body rejects it five years later? Oh, absolutely. Wow. Yeah, if they, you know, some people get complacent and say, yeah, I've had this kidney for five years. I'm gonna back off on my meds or my insurance ran out and I don't wanna pay for the med myself or call the transplant center. And even though they've had a good functioning transplant for five years, in a week they could lose it. So are they somewhat um, compromised for the rest of their life, like when they get those surgeries? Because their immune system has to be the, somewhat weaker? You have to keep that immune system suppressed in order to prevent the rejection. Now, the, the closer you are to the time of transplant, the more you have to use. As you get further out, then you can start decreasing and, and start, yeah, it. you can start playing with mm. it a little, but they always have to be on something. Wow. Um, so I'm assuming we have one liver, correct? Yep. And that filters uh, urine? Or no, filters? it filters blood also, okay. but it, it takes other um, products. Because I know that's what filters alcohol, right? Alcohol goes through there and gets metabolized in there and byproducts. So the liver, the liver has, liver produces a bunch of proteins. It's a protein producing organ, clotting factors and things, and it helps, you know, filter out bad stuff and that's where your bile is made. Mm -hmm. um, so it's also, it, it produces a lot of things, important proteins, and it helps to eliminate most like nitrogen wastes and stuff that occur in the system. So it's similar to the kidneys, but just acts in a different manner. Gotcha, and you um, obviously you pulled those off of cadavers? Both living donors and cadavers. How would you get it off of a living donor? We do, where is, <laughs> So interesting, we're the second busiest living donor liver program in the country. Um, we will usually take the right, liver has a left lobe and a right lobe, and we'll usually take the uh, right lobe of an adult to transplant into another adult. And the liver is the only organ that regenerates. That regenerates as long as the healthy liver. Okay, I was liver's about to only, say that. Exactly, liver is the only that. organ that regenerates. And if you did a CAT scan on that donor in three months, it would look like a normal liver. Wow! So you can cut it in half, and then the other it'll grow back. As long as it's a healthy liver to start Whoa. with. Whoa! So yeah, so that's how you can do a living donor liver. The vast majority are still cadaver organs. Uh -huh. Both well, kidney about half the. 30 to 40% of uh, kidney transplants are actually from living donors. 
um, the rest are cadaver. The majority of liver transplants are still cadaver, but um, more and more living donors are being done. So during these procedures, I, I'm curious, how does the procedure work? They come into the operating room, I'm assuming they're asleep. They go to yeah. They come in awake, then they're put to sleep by an anesthesiologist. Because I've got surgery, but only knee surgery, so nothing yeah. major. Um, so you cut them open, then you cut out whatever you need. I've always wondered with ve with veins and like um, you know the different uh, what would you call them? Just veins, veins, arteries, arteries, yeah. all that. Yeah. How does a surgeon? go about connecting all the tiny little tubes? Because I'm assuming some are tiny, right? Yeah, in liver transplant, kidney transplant, the tiniest thing, you know, maybe the diameter of these plugs okay. are about the tiniest. It's not like microsurgery, not like what okay. some plastic surgeons are doing or eye surgeons. He's talking about an auxiliary plug. Yeah, so, you know, size of a pencil, let's say, okay. for the smallest thing that we're operating uh, okay. on. And we have these telescopic, we call them loops, you know, those glasses that with the little micro, with yeah. the little thing. Um, and, you know, this suture. And so you that, just stitch them up? We just, yeah. Mm. Look through our nails and sew so so around it. So now that you've done these, it's something super basic, second nature, not a big deal to you. It's a job. Yeah. It's been a job for 20 years. Yeah. But I'm assuming when you first got in, it was this momentous, like, it holy was. shit, I'm doing liver surgery. I hate saying it, but yeah, it's a job. I've done a lot of them, go to work, come home, Yeah. go to CrossFit. Yeah. <laughs> it's fascinating how... There are people who want to do something and become experts, but don't realize that it takes so long. But if you just stick with something, you will become an expert. And you definitely, um, so each, I'm definitely better at it now than I was 10 years ago. I assume as long as I don't develop some type of tremor or something, I'm going to be still better at it in five years. Yeah. It's not from the technique, it's just from things you see like, you know, Oh, I've seen that before. We can handle it. Yes. You know, when I'm operating with my junior partners and they're like, how did you know to do that? And I was like, well, because I've seen it before. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I've done it. I've seen that happen. This is what you do when this happens. So you just kind of, you just, your technical abilities may not change, but it's just the experience that you've gained from every case. Yeah. And every hard one, you always say, well, that's that's the hardest side. There can't be one harder than that. So everything's got to be easier after this uh -huh. one. But has there anything that's happened recently um, in your memory where you were like, "Wow, I haven't seen that before"? Like, when's the last time that happened to you? Uh, aha moment type of thing. It's been a long time. Really? Yeah. I wish I could give you some great example, uh -huh. but it's no. not as glamorous <laughs> as it sounds. Uh -huh. I have. I don't recall. I can't recall an aha moment. Um, you know, like we're like ah. Oh. Uh huh. It's been a long time. So with these surgeries, is is it kind of straightforward? You open them up, you cut out either the kidney. kidney yeah, the kidney liver. transplant should be very straightforward. There shouldn't be many surprises in a kidney transplant. Liver transplants can get a little dicey. In what um, sense? In the sense that the rate limiting step in a liver transplant is how easy it is to get the old liver out. And that could be, you know, factors related to previous operations and a lot of scar tissue. Putting the new liver in should just be a matter of steps. I got to sew this, you know, it's like this one, two, three, 
four things that need to be sewed in, remove all the clamps, and then stop whatever bleedings, and you're done. Uh -huh. So it, it, the liver transplant, taking the old liver out is usually the rate limiting step on how easy a transplant's gonna be. That's the rate limiting step means what, the hardest part? The hardest part. Gotcha. What, what's gonna dictate how the course of the surgery and the time it takes. What is the reason for that? Is that because it's behind other things? No, it just could be, you know, some are very easy, but some could be very scarred in, and it's usually ah, scarred in from prior operations, some okay. other operation or infections that have caused a lot of scar tissue to develop around uh -huh. the liver. Um, some are very easy to take out. I mean, you know, we can do, most kidney transplants are done in about two and a half hours, and we've been able to do some liver transplants in three hours. It's not like, shouldn't be this 15 hour operation yeah, uh -huh. that you see in the movies or something like yeah. that, no. So I'm assuming um, it makes it much more challenging if you have, let's say, a really big person with a lot of fat. And it's just not challenging. It makes it a pain in the ass. Mm. Yeah, there's no such thing as challenging. It's either easy or a pain in the ass. Mm, okay. We don't like using the word challenging. I don't need do... to be. I don't want to be challenged anymore. Uh -huh, I'd uh -huh. rather not be challenged. So if you have a completely healthy person, it's and and they don't have any scar tissue built up, it's just kind of like it's not a big deal. That's yeah, it. and that's that's okay with me. Oh, it's not like, oh, that was boring or something. Yeah, yeah, I like yeah. boring. Uh huh. So um, one more question for you. Uh -huh. I, said, I don't want to take too much time. I say this to everybody, right? <laughs> but this is one of my longer ones, and I appreciate it because I'm getting a lot of insight. What I is hope the you edit it, though. I don't think someone wants to hear this. Nothing. All, none of this is edited. Okay. That's the beauty well, of it. Well, at least they can fast forward through then. <laughs> um, what is the future of medicine? Is it possible that we're gonna be able to um, create you know, synthetic livers, synthetic kidneys, as far as you know? What, well, if we're talking- they, Is that something they're working on? Well, or? no, they've been working on it for decades. So anything that someone's been working on for decades generally means they don't, we don't have it right. So um, we've been working on, not we have a, as a field have been working on um, not necessarily synthetic, but trying to create some type of like um, uh, lab generated liver. You know, mm. it's still liver tissue, and, and you need, you know, trying to develop some type of biomatrix framework that you can, you know, put liver cells on and it grows into a liver. Um, and that's been going on for years. You may have seen the picture of the mouse that had the ear growing on it. I don't know if you've ever seen mm -hmm. that. You know, in, and that was going on when I was in training. And I look at it, it's been 20 years and not much has, not changed. Much has changed. So, you know, and they're, you know, trying to get baboon organs or pig organs to transplant. Again, that was going on in the research labs at Mass General 20 years ago, and there still hasn't been a monkey successful baboon to a human or a pig to a human or even a good pig to a baboon that's lasted long enough. So um, it's that type of research and evolution of the field or where it's gonna evolve. It's, you know, you're not talking years, you're talking decades. Mm. And it's already been, you know, at least three decades. It's probably going to be that much longer before we see anything like that. Mm -hmm. From the time you started doing these surgeries to now, 
How has the medicine for you changed? Not much? Nothing has changed. Really? A few of the immunosuppressive drugs have changed, but we're doing the same thing today that we did in 1997 when I started training at Mass General. It's the same operation. It's the same cocktail of drugs. Maybe we know how to use the drugs better now or have better monitoring tools for them, but it's the exact same three drugs that I used in 1997 when I started training. Mm -hmm. There hasn't been any significant, you know, explosion in the field do you think that's because there doesn't really need to be because it's such a successful well uh, survival I, I, rate or? you can some, maybe you get um, drug companies to say that and that's why they don't want to fund um, research into drugs mm. because they say okay you know we've got phenomenal graph survival rates right now um, we don't need to develop any new drugs in the pipeline at least in transplant it's such a kind of a niche or niche um, field that drug companies aren't going to necessarily make a lot of money in it mm. like they would with a cholesterol lowering drug that mm. you can put millions of people on I versus see. a couple of thousand on for a transplant. That's the bad thing. That's this is the you know the dirty the, yeah, yeah the dirty part of medicine the money, the money mm. part. Drug company would much rather you know, invest in a lipid lowering drug that they can put millions of people on than some cancer drug that a hundred patients are going to use a year. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Fascinating, yeah. fascinating stuff. Well, I'll let you get going. I appreciate this, man. <laughs> I appreciate the stories being open to telling me about your experiences and the knowledge you've shared. Um, you got a laptop with a USB port? I do. Bring it here for a second. Sure. I just want to show you the theater hospital so you kind of, you know, I was describing it for so long that you can get an idea of what it looked like. Beautiful. I got it on a thumb drive in the car. But we'll end this here. We can do this again. Yeah, I don't know what I'm going to be able to tell you. I'll again. figure something out. I'll <laughs> figure something out. Thank hey, you, Greg. Let me, go. Let me grab the thumb drive. Yes, sir. All right, guys. Thank you guys for tuning in. Hope you guys uh, enjoyed and learned something new because I definitely did.